Bullshit is everywhere. Bullshit is rampant. Bullshit. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! Welcome back to the Bullshit Filter. My name is Cameron Riley. Hello, Ray. Hello, Cam. How are you? Good, Ray. Last time, uh, last time on the show, Ray. Uh, actually, you weren't with me last time. I did my interview with Mohanad Sakher from, uh, uh, who's from Latakia, Damascus, too. Originally, um, I think you were traveling. You were flying over the Pacific to come to visit me. But uh, before that, uh, on episode fifteen, you and I were talking about uh, some background on ISIS. Gaddafi was murdered. We got up to about October two thousand and eleven, and. Folks, this is episode 17. What what I want to do from this point onwards is we're going to move pretty quickly. We're going to do some time jumping, some skipping, because quite frankly, from October 2011 through to sort of the middle of 2013, there's uh, not a lot to talk about. We're going to cover some highlights, but really there's just violence, escalating violence every day. I mean, it's not like there are big... I mean, it's big for the people involved, obviously, but um, from a bystander's viewpoint, it's just ever-increasing violence between the Syrian army and uh, civilians, the Syrian army and rebels, and rebels on the Syrian army, and rebels on maybe civilians, uh, and it's hard to tell what the fuck is going on for a lot of it. Did you want to say something, Ray, before we get into it? Yeah, and sorry, and uh, there was also some rebel on rebel action because, uh, as you know, as we we're going to find out, there's going to be a lot of different sides coming into this thing, a lot of proxy wars, as we said before. But just keep in mind, for the last decade, there's been lots of droughts, um, food prices are going up, unemployment's going up. Um, the government uh, in early to mid. 2011 had a stockpile of grain, but prices were so high for grain they were too tempted. They sold a lot of it off, and so by the time this this unrest gets started, there's not a lot of surplus grain laying around um, to take care of the people who are struggling. And as Cam said, I believe two episodes ago, people started abandoning uh, abandoning their farm. They're either selling it cheap or they're just walking away from it, going to the cities, making the situations there even worse. So even before this. Um, what happens in March with the with the fifteen uh, year old boy? The teenagers spraying, uh, spray um, spraying the um, slogans. I mean, things are getting ugly. Things have been getting ugly for a long time. The people are very unhappy, and it's going to come out all very quickly. But like Cam said, for the next year and a half, it's pretty much protest, fight, protest, kill, march, protest, different, just different protests. Uh, whether you're pro Assad or against Assad, and it just escalates and it never stops and it spreads to um, a lot of the different cities, and it just gets very ugly, very vicious, and very personal, very yeah. quickly. And there are bodies. There are bodies everywhere, every day, more or less. Yeah. There's an attack by one party on another, and there are dead bodies. So. In early October 2011, the United Nations Security Council took its first vote 
regarding the Syrian civil war. Even at that point, people weren't even really referring to it as a civil war. They just wanted to pass a vote to condemn the Syrian government uh, for its human rights abuses and, and to call them to end it immediately. Now, nine of the Security Council's 15 members voted in favour of the draft text. Four abstained, Brazil, India, Lebanon and South Africa. And you have to wonder, why would you abstain from... Uh, a vote of this nature. What are the interests of those countries to want to abstain from such a vote? Is it because they have interests in Syria or with the Syrian government? Or is it because they're like, oh, shit, if we sign that, it's going to come back and bite us on the ass? Lebanon, of course, we know has a very close relationship with Syria. Brazil, India and South Africa, I'm not exactly sure what their rationale was. But to abstain from a vote like this, there's usually some sort of good reason. But most importantly, two countries, two permanent members of the Security Council vetoed. Now, for people who don't listen to our Cold War show and aren't familiar with how the Security Council works, there are, for when the Security Council was set up by Roosevelt, Churchill and Stalin towards the end of World War II, uh, there were five permanent members, United States, United Kingdom, the USSR as it was then, it's now Russia, China and France. And and these five permanent members get a veto. Basically, that means they can veto anything that goes through the Security Council and that's it. It's done. It's dead in the water if they veto it. It's a stupid system. Don't ask. Don't Let's not get into the, the hows and the whys and the wherefores of why it was set up. If you're interested in that, go and listen to our Yalta episodes of the uh, Cold War show all 24 hours of them. Um, but uh, basically, the point here is that Russia and China vetoed this uh, vote against Syria. The Russian ambassador, Vitaly Cherkin, said, listen, we don't support the regime of Bashar al-Assad, but this vote isn't really going to bring about a peaceful resolution of the crisis. The, the, the Syrian people don't want a quick change. They want gradual change. Uh, for all of the reasons that we've talked about uh, on previous episodes of this show. Uh, but he did say that the Russian Federation would be calling on Bashar al-Assad to implement in, uh, constitutional change faster, freeing detainees uh, who had committed no crime, start dialogues with the opposition, interact more with the League of Arab States, etc., etc. China's ambassador Li Baodong said that while his country was very concerned about the violence in Syria, the draft text would only complicate tensions more. He said it was all focused on bringing about pressure on the Syrian government, but that's not going to resolve the situation. There needs to be dialogue between all the parties. Well, first of all, when you said the Japanese, uh, Chinese, sorry, World War Two, Chinese ambassador's name, I think you used the wrong tone. I could be wrong, though. But also in the last 200 years, China has had uh, within its history replete uh, examples of being invaded, being carved up by foreign powers. So the Chinese, almost more than anyone else, besides having their own financial uh, interest in Syria, uh, they are very sensitive to other countries going into another country, <coughs> telling them what to do, um, demanding certain things from them. So the Chinese have a history in the last 40, 50 years of, uh, of, of backing countries' uh, independence and not to be uh, meddled with by outside forces. Another thing that happened in October of 2011 
the new Syrian National Council and Opposition Alliance, established you know a couple of months ago in August in Turkey, said it had forged a common front of internal and exiled opposition act- act- activists, uh, supposedly like the Muslim Brotherhood, signatories of the 2005 Damascus Declaration, people from the higher Syrian Revolutionary Council have all come together, and their goal is to get rid of Assad, set up a modern civil democratic state, and some of their uh, other things they want to focus on are human rights, judicial independence, freedom of the press, democracy, and political uh, pluralism. You can believe that, you cannot believe that, whatever, but with a healthy dose of skepticism that we've shown on the show, I think another way to look at that is, I think several powerful families and or factions came together, saw that Assad was weak, and decided it was time to strike, obviously putting on the camouflage of wanting to help the people. But again, I think it's, you know, this family's been in charge for decades. It's time for someone else to uh, to want to be in, in control. And now they see that at this moment in time, in August 2011, it's their turn to strike. And so they do. And I just have to add this before we go. Uh, in very early October of 2011, Venezuelan President Hugo Chavez amped up his support for both the, de- the deposed Libyan strongman Muammar Gaddafi and Assad, calling them brothers and backing Assad against the aggression from Yankee imperialists and their European allies. As we know, a couple of weeks later, Gaddafi was dead, I guess a couple of what years or whatever, or months. Chavez was dead, and now the last one who's still standing is Assad. And um, we'll just see how long he goes. <laughs> you can never know what it's like. Your blood like when a freezer just like ice. And there's a cold and lonely light that shines from you. You wind up like the wreck you hide behind that mask you use. You just fade away Don't you know I'm still standing Better than I ever did Looking like a true survivor Feeling like a little kid I'm still standing After all this time Picking up the pieces of my life Without you on my mind I'm still standing I know Bashar al-Assad is more of a Phil Collins fan than an Elton John fan, but I'm pretty sure he wakes up, plays that song. That's his alarm clock every morning. I was going to say, that's on his playlist. Most death. Yes. Yes. Well, you're right. Getting back to uh, Russia and China vetoing the Security Council resolution. I mean, we know, and I think we've touched on this before, Russia's interests in Syria are mostly to do with a combination of trade and security, as always, the two big, the T and the S, the trade and security. Um, Syria's been a, an ally of Russia's in the Middle East for a long time. They sell arms to Syria. They maintain mm-hmm. a naval base there. Uh, you might recall that in earlier episodes, I mentioned that when the Soviet Union collapsed early 90s. Hafez, al-Assad, still alive at the time, briefly aligned himself with the USA during Gulf War I. But by the early 2000s, 
Russia, uh, then being run by a guy called Vladimir Putin, I think I pronounced that right, um, agreed to forgive three quarters of the debts that Syria owed to the Soviet Union, about $9.8 billion out of $13.4 billion in order to renew their commercial yeah. relationship. By the time that's how you form a friendship. Yeah, I forgive. Well, I forget that. That's let the past be past. Now, by the time uh, the Syrian uprising began, Russia had twenty billion in trade and investment with Syria. Guess how much of that twenty billion was arms sales, Ray? Um, nineteen. <laughs> Not quite that bad. Eight. <laughs> Eight out of the twenty okay. billion. Uh, now, of course, Russia now it's not a communist country anymore, very much a business-oriented country or an oligarchy, really. Um, the Russian government obviously wants to protect the investments that its businessmen have made in Syria over the last, well, 17-odd years now. Mm-hmm. Um, forgiving debt is forgiving money that is owed to the treasury, that is the people. So forgiving debt really is no big deal if you don't give a shit about the people. That's the people's money. You're like, ah, oh, look, don't worry about the people's money. Worry about my money. As as an as a one of a handful of uh, billionaire businessmen, that's who you want to be worrying about, not the people's money. <laughs> and if you need to understand it a little bit better, there's a clip on YouTube, um, Kramer from Seinfeld explaining to Jerry how they write things off. So if you need some further explanation, go check that out. I wish you'd given me advance warning of that. I could have thrown it in the show, oh, dude. Sorry. Mm. sorry. And now, the Moscow Times reported in 2011 that Russian companies had big investments in Syrian infrastructure, in tourism, in the energy industries, and that their arms sales to Syria accounted for about 10% of Russia's total arms sales. The... Uh, Syrian regime bought MiG-29 fighter, Pantsir fighter, so Pantsir surface-to-air missiles, artillery systems, anti-tank weaponry, much of which was later used to attack the rebels and civilians, of course. So there's a, you know, we have to understand, as we've said endless times, I think, on this and, and the Cold War series, when one country supports another country, it's usually about a combination of trade and security we we've also mentioned that one of russia's reasons for supporting syria is that it's real syria is really their last ally in the middle east so many of the countries in the middle east in the last 50 years have gradually aligned themselves with the american regime and mm-hmm. even though russia's not a communist country anymore it's still sees the United States and vice versa as a competing, you know, superpower, uh, even though Russia's ability to compete with the US is still lagging a long way behind. They're still competing for really building economic blocks, economic blocks of interest, even though that's not the terms they would use for it, but that's really what's happening. 
And there's there's one more aspect to that. Um, as we said in the uh, Cold War show, every country that wants to be a major player has to really focus on trade and bring in the revenue. Uh, you need warm water ports. And the one thing that Syria could give Russia was access to the Mediterranean, extremely vital for trade. So again, there's just a lot of different reasons why these two are going to stick with each other, come what may. Yeah. So that's one of the reasons, or some of the reasons anyway, why... Russia has been supporting Syria uh, during this civil war, and I don't expect that to change anytime soon. Uh, You have to also understand that Russia's been steadily losing influence around Eastern Europe as most of the Eastern European countries join NATO or become part of the Eurozone. Uh, Russia has gradually uh, seen itself since the end of the Cold War Surrounded by enemies, Uh, keeping in mind that NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, was established to act as a, uh, what would you call it, a buffer against uh, Russian expansion, expansion. Soviet expansion, yeah. And, you know, after the Soviet Union collapsed, you would think that NATO itself would be disbanded, but... Quite the contrary. NATO's become stronger and stronger with more and more countries uh, joining it since the end of the Cold War. And the Russians, uh, for very good reasons, see that as a threat. Russia is now surrounded by nuclear, well, well, not nuclear necessarily, by missiles uh, pointing in its direction. And um, that is a that's a that's a very real threat that they have to deal with. Yeah. But good, fortunately for them, they have a leader who was uh, very bold, very daring, very decisive, won't hesitate to take off his shirt. And um, mm-hmm. in him, he, they've been able, in Vladimir Putin, they've been able to find someone who was not worried about laws or rules and who will, to some degree, tamper with the inner workings of other countries. If you can't defeat someone, uh, muddle in their affairs, get them maybe arguing arguing amongst themselves, almost almost as good as occupation. So... Uh, Putin has done a very good job of bringing his uh, adversaries low without actually striking against them, because like you said, they are no longer the military superpower that they once were. Yeah, and they've seen all of these so-called coloured revolutions happen, uh, particularly in the last sort of 10 years. The uh, Rose Revolution in Georgia, as it was known, the Orange Revolution in Ukraine. And according to... uh, a few scholars that I read, like Alexander Goltz, who's a military expert at an online newspaper in Russia called Yezhevnevi Journal, Yezhevnevi, I probably pronounced that wrong, fuck it, YZ, I'll just call it YZ. He wrote, Putin has a real paranoia about coloured revolutions. Such uprisings are thought to be the result of Western conspiracies. The attitude is we're not going to be fooled anymore. Now, they also, the Russian leaders also thought that they had been suckered by the United Nations vote on Libya in March 2011. Both China and Russia abstained on the Security Council's vote to establish a no-fly zone uh, to protect civilians in Benghazi. And, uh, you know, they saw what happened as a consequence, uh, you know, by, by, by not vetoing that, by just abstaining from that. Uh, basically, you know, the, the NATO and uh, the UN got involved, the US got involved, Gaddafi was killed, 
and Libya has basically fallen under US control. Um, Gaddafi had purchased billions uh, in Soviet slash Russian arms over the decades. The two countries had pretty close relations up until Gaddafi was killed. So the the overthrow of Gaddafi in Libya was a huge blow to Russia, both economically and politically and militarily. So uh, one Russian diplomat said, we made a big mistake on the Libya vote. We won't make it again on Syria. So what you're saying is, in the immortal words of uh, George W. Bush, the intelligent, fool me once, shame on you. We can't be fooled again. Yeah, I could have just played the clip, but no, you, you, you could have. Yeah. yeah, no, he's so much better at it than I am. Yeah. So there, there's some of the reasons. Now, again, I, you don't have to agree with Russia's position on this. It's certainly, I mean, uh, it, it, it's fairly bloodthirsty or cold, I guess, when you are sure that there's a regime that is brutally oppressing its civilians to say, well, you know, yes, yeah, okay, they're killing a lot of people, but they're good customers. So, you know, on the other hand, uh, Syrian civilians aren't my problem, really. Okay, so, but if you break this down, um, you're, let's say you're, let, let's give Vladimir Putin the benefit of the doubt. Let's say it's not all about lining his own pockets, although I saw you posted an article in one of our Facebook groups the other day saying that estimates are that, Putin's worth $200 billion personally. Mm-hmm. Who knows? Uh, but I'm sure, he's, I'm sure he's doing okay. He can afford a shirt. Yeah. I mean, yeah, just, just that... Um, I mean, if you're, a, if you're an all-but-name the dictator of a country and you know, the oligarchs around you have to try to please you, you're, you're, going to get all, you're going to amass money along the way. And he's been in charge for a long time. He'll probably be in charge for a lot longer time. And... And when you take that and you simply add the concept of interest to whatever in his in, is in his account, uh, he's he's probably doing okay. He's going to be okay. He's going to be okay. Well, where I was going with this is if you if you give him the benefit of the doubt, which is pretty hard to do, but you say, okay, let's say he's really just thinking about the well-being of the Russian people, and he thinks, okay, well, yes, some civilians are getting killed in Syria, but mm-hmm. uh, if we lose Bashar al-Assad's control of Syria and it falls to a pro-American country. That new government's not going to be buying weapons from us in the future. They're going to be buying weapons and other things from the United States or one of the United States' allies. That means we lose $20 billion of trade and investment uh, every year with Syria, which means our economy is going to suffer, which means uh, our people are going to suffer. And my job as the president of Russia is to look after my people, not the Syrian people. That's not my job. So you can break it down to a fairly cold, brutal, real politics stance fairly quickly. But, uh, you know, I'm not sure that really justifies it from any sort of moral perspective. But it's like, I mean, I tend to think that it's probably more about his personal interests and also the security interests of Russia. Well, if if Syria falls, we're just going to have one more uh, American-friendly regime that'll be pointing missiles in our direction from another country and one less 
friendly government in the Middle East, which is obviously a vital region. And we don't have any real friendly regions there right now because they're all allied with the United States. So if we lose Syria, our influence in them, even though Syria doesn't have oil or a lot of oil itself, if we lose any influence, if we lose that last bit of influence in the Middle East, uh, our influence over that entire region is gone forever until we yeah. get it back. I, I was listening to a news report the other day, and they were saying that the United States, um, roughly around the, about this time, has is down to like five thousand nuclear uh, missiles, well, weapons on submarines and bases and, and things like that. So um, certainly we have enough to uh, to take out Russia all by ourselves. But yeah, when you are literally surrounded by people who are either neutral to you or, or opposed to you and they're and are allies with the United States, even for just economic reasons, I mean, that's not a good place to be in. I mean, Putin is doing the best he can um, defensively, but He's got to figure out a way to hold on to Syria, which also means keeping Assad in in power. I wanted to share something with you from November of 2011. Not that I'm trying to push the story forward, but as bad as things are for Assad at this time in August, uh, and obviously for the people because of a lot of the uh, uh, the snipers and the attacks on, on protesters and stuff like that. In November of 2011, the Arab League which is made up of 22 nations, suspends Syria from the league, accusing it of failing to implement an Arab peace plan. And it imposes, imposes sanctions. Forget about the United States. Forget about uh, Britain, France, all that kind of stuff. Their own, their own countrymen, their own, their own people in their same area are the ones who are now imposing sanctions on them and calling Assad out. And you just got to wonder about this. And the Qatari uh, prime minister said, uh, Syria is a dear country for all of us, and it pains us to make this decision. We hope there will be a brave move from Syria to stop the violence and begin a real dialogue towards reform. And the um, secretary general of the opposition Syrian National Council told Al Jazeera that... um, uh, let's see here. This is a historic day for Syria because if we can get even our own people to condemn them, maybe Assad will make some changes. But um, he also pointed out that this is probably going to upset Assad, make him very angry. And unfortunately, knowing the nature of the regime as we do, we know that violence will be even more harsh in the next coming days uh, as a reprisal. Yeah. Now, when we say their own people, I mean they're Arabs and they're Muslims, right, right. but in a very general, very they're not they're not Frenchmen, they're not Americans, they're you know they're not Chinese in a very general sense. Yeah. Look, we we know from all of the background that we've done that Saudi Arabia and Qatar don't have a lot of uh, aligned interests with the Syrians. Um, you know, the the Saudis want to see a Sunni takeover of the entire Middle East. That's why they're the enemies of Iran and why they're the enemies of Syria. Um, and we know that the the um, other members of the Arab League have their own sort of geopolitical and economic interests that they're fighting for here. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, one of the things that happened, though, after the Arab League came out and, and, and sort of threatened to suspend Syria... Uh, is there were huge protests uh, in Syria. I think the Saudi Arabian and Qatari uh, embassies were attacked by crowds in Damascus as a response to these threats from the Arab League. At the same time, the Turkish and French consulates in Latakia were also attacked. Hundreds of thousands of supporters of the Assad regime 
were protesting against the Arab League decision. Uh, And the Jordanian embassy in Damascus was also attacked after the Jordanian King Abdullah II criticized the violence and called for Bashar to step down. So these these things led to even more. It's kind of, you know, ironic in a way. The Arab League, etc., get up and say, stop the violence. And by saying that, it creates more violence, uh, more protests. That right. they, I mean, so their embassies are getting attacked. Who's going to defend the attacks on their embassies? The Syrian army. So it's like by 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 the Arab League telling the Syrian army to stop uh, the violence, they're actually creating the conditions where the Syrian army needs to use more violence. Um, but before we get too far ahead, uh, still in October, I wanted to just cover something. The Iranian president at the time, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, Ahmadinejad, let me try that again, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, mm-hmm. uh, did an interview with Fareed Zakaria on CNN and interest, had some interesting things to say. Let's play a clip. Will you add your voice uh, and call on the Assad regime to step down and listen to the will of the people? We have a friendly relationship with both Turkey and Syria. Our policy is independent. We think we should respect the independence and sovereignty of all nations, of everywhere in the world, in the United States, in Europe. We think all parties must sit and reach an understanding, and there should be no intervention from outside or interference neither from NATO or us. But Mr. President, you you make it sound like the two sides are equal. In fact, uh, what is happening in Syria is not that the protesters are killing the security forces. The vast majority of deaths are the security forces killing innocent men, women and children. Uh, Surely this is something you should condemn clearly and not say both sides are to blame. If justice and freedom are the goal, it is important that President Assad hear your message. Justice dictates that nobody should kill the other. Nobody, nobody, nobody has the right to kill others. Neither the governments nor the opponents. We are going to make greater efforts to encourage both the government of Syria and the other side, all parties, uh, to reach an understanding. But I think and we believe that there should be no interference from outside. The positions of the United States are not going to help. They have never helped. They could do things better in Libya, for example. From the beginning, we said there should be an international team to mediate in order to encourage all parties to reach an understanding. But NATO had ambitions in Libya. They wanted the oil resources in Libya. There was no need to kill so many people. This is the situation in Syria, too. There's a lot more of my interview with President Ahmadinejad still to come. Up next. Yeah. So, 
You can see that at this point, uh, we know that Iran is a close ally of Syria, but even at this point, the president of Iran is saying uh, there are killings and massacre on both sides. So it's important that even at this point, he doesn't have the unqualified support of Iran, his his main ally. Right. And, and just to keep in mind, back in September, on September 21st of 2011, um, Turkey had already cut off all contact with Syria. And for everybody who fears that this... Um, internal struggle, whatever you want to call it, could spread and become something much larger. Obviously, it could very much happen between Syria and Turkey now that the fact that they're not talking to each other makes a lot of people in the region very nervous. But right, but early on, um, Syria just shut down communications. And I can't remember exactly when, when, when it was, but a Syrian jet fighter was in training and it was shot down by um, Assad's forces um, they weren't sure what it was, and so they just shot and fired. But but tension between the countries is very high, and and again, that just makes everybody else in the in the region very nervous. Did you just say a Syrian jet fighter was shot down by Assad? No shit, a, Tur- um, a Turkish. I'm sorry, shit, a Turkish fighter um, accidentally traveled into Syrian airspace. It was testing the radar, and without warning, they weren't contacted to say, "Hey, get back on your side of the border." Forces from Assad shot down the. Turkish fighter. I apologize for that. <laughs> so around about this time, uh, you know, sort of Novemberish, uh, the British and French governments officially started discussions with the Syrian opposition. Mm. So this is where we see the um, Western intervention really start to happen in Syria, sort of late 2011 as far as we know officially that's there may have been unofficial involvement but officially this is when they start to get involved and as you mentioned the turkish prime minister erdogan uh so had broken off contact and called on bashar al-assad to step down it was the first time erdogan had directly called for bashar's removal from power so he's surrounded on all sides now. A uh, little bit of support still from Iran, a little bit of support from Russia, but he's starting to feel the heat. So uh, late 2011, we have the Arab League agreed that they were going to press forward with economic sanctions. Um, they were going to freeze business with the Central Bank of Syria. Now, it's important to know that even though there is not a lot of agreement um, about Sunni versus Shia between the members of the Arab League, they did do a lot of trade together. According to Syria's Bureau of Statistics, 52.5% of all Syrian exports went to Arab countries in 2009. So major trading partners, when they cut off, when, when the people that you... Do you do exporting to shut that down and fifty percent of your exports are yeah. killed? I mean, not not that the economy is going to be very strong for very long here, but as you and you pointed out at the beginning of the episode, Syria's economy was already struggling before all of this happened. Now, the Arab countries are going to freeze all of their. Um, uh, trade with them, and they also put a travel ban on regime officials. They suspended infrastructure spending by Arab governments in Syria. 
Now, Iraq and Lebanon voted against the sanctions. Iraq uh, was worth about 31% of Syrian exports. Mm. So, you know, out of that 52%, 31% of it was going to Iraq. So they were, they were trying to maintain uh, their good relationship with Syria, their trading relationship with Syria, as was Lebanon. But it's still going to take a big toll on the Syrian economy. At this stage, in early December, according to the UN, the death toll is over 4,000. And the UN now starts to characterize it as a civil war. Yeah, when I was going through the timeline of the civil war, I mean, you just, even though the numbers obviously aren't as accurate as um, as they as you would like them to be, just as from a historical point of view, uh, but you just watch the number of casualties. And again, a lot of it is, most of it is civilians start to rise. And so by December of um, 2011, yeah, it's up to 4,000, but that's probably a conservative number. It's probably more than that. And between the deaths and between the defections going to the Free Syrian Army, I think the UN has has very little choice but to characterize it as a civil war because clearly this is not just, you know, the president coming down on a couple of people until they until they stop, you know, giving him a hard time. The people are fighting back. They've been angry for years. The, what happened with the teenagers when they sprayed um, the epitaphs. So um, these people are very angry. Somehow they've been able to get weapons. They are ambushing government troops. This is an all-out war. Just because it's one-sided at the moment doesn't mean that it should not be taken seriously by the UN. And they do by the end of 20, 2011 by calling it a civil war. Now, around about this time, Bashar al-Assad did his first interview with American media. Uh, He did an interview, televised interview with Barbara Walters. And um, I'm going to play some clips of it here just so you can hear him in his own words, how he's positioning the situation in Syria at the time. It's it's kind of fascinating in a a bunch of ways, kind of a bit creepy, a bit weird. Um, Yeah. You watched the thing, did you? You watched the interview? Yeah, yeah. I mean, just, just the way he was like, almost like, what, what are you? What are you talking about? What are you? No, 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 no. This is how it is. He just downplayed everything, and, and he failed miserably. But again, it just shows why he still wants to be in power because he is not going anywhere, and he's he's willing to lie to everybody about it. So I I just find it fascinating. It gives you insights into the man. First of all, here's Barbara Walters uh, talking about her impressions of Bashar from after the interview. Barbara, welcome home. Thank you. You have sat with Saddam Hussein, Gaddafi, Mubarak. How does this man compare? Very different. He's not a grim, strong man the way Mubarak was. He's not a wild, crazy person. At least that's the way Gaddafi seemed to us. He is calm. He is soft-spoken. He is articulate. He speaks very good English. There were no ground rules. Um, he answered every question. But there is this disconnect, Bill, between what we hear about this country, the reports that we have seen, and what he says. And it's hard to put the two things together. Yeah, that was my take on it as well. Yeah. The, the actual, the whole interview goes for an hour and a half, so I'm just going to play a few clips. Here's here's, uh, a second excerpt. Did you give the order for the crackdown? No, we give the order to implement the constitution and the law. We don't have policy. We don't don't have institution that kill people or give order for brutal reaction. This is individual, and that's what I call 
what I described as individual mistakes. Okay, done by the military or done by whom? We don't know everything. But in some cases, done by the police. In some cases, done by civilians. Civilians who support the government, not by, not by government, not by police. But not by your command? No, no, no. We don't have nobody, no one's command. There was no command to kill or to be brutal. People went from houses to houses. Children were arrested. I Where? saw those pictures. But you, to be frank with you, Barbara, I don't live here. How did you know all this, this? We have to be here to see. We don't see this. So it cannot depend on what you hear in the in United States. But I saw reporters who brought back pictures. Yeah, but how, how did you verify those pictures? Yeah, so it's, uh, that's why we are talking about false allegations and distortion of reality. Do you feel guilty? <laughs> I, I did my best to protect the people, so you cannot feel guilty when you do your best. You feel sorry for the life that has been lost, but you don't feel guilty when you don't kill people. And this is Assad's main argument. His country, he says, is not on the brink of a civil war. The world has been duped by those violent videos and that this is not a fight against peaceful protesters, but against armed opponents of the regime. So basically, well before Donald Trump, Bashar was just going, it's fake news. You can't, it's, none of it's real. You can't believe any of it. Don't, it's, it, you know, where's your proof, Barbara? You, ha- you don't have any yeah. proof. Video is not proof. The thing, the thing that freaked me out the most, honestly, was the way he smiled and laughed through the interview. Like, yeah, he seems way too calm and distant. Like, at this point, <laughs> admittedly, there's only 4,000 p- civilians dead. Uh, only, I say. Uh, right. in, in inverted commas, but, you know, compared to whatever it is now, half a million. But at, 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 I would have to think that if I was the president of a country where 4,000 people were dead and there was protests and violence and snipers and tanks and I was being interviewed, I would be like, yeah, even if I was completely innocent, I wouldn't right. be sm- smiling and laughing. I'd be like... Fuck, Barbara! It's 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 god awful. It's terrible. I don't know what to tell you. Like, uh, we really don't know what's going on. Um, we 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 don't know really where it's coming from. We're trying everything we can, but listen, it, my heart bleeds. This is this is uh, yeah, this is not what you want happening in your country. Yeah, we've had yeah. violence before. We always try to avoid. You know, you would be, but he's like smiling and laughing and playing like psychological games where they're like, well, I'm sorry, Barbara, but you don't have proof. So, <laughs> you know, like it's yeah. just, it's not, it it doesn't make any sense. His, he is very quiet. He's softly spoken. He doesn't come across as a crazy man, as she said, but this, it's just, there's something wrong. There's something off about his response. Yeah. For, for me, the whole, the craziest moment was when you stop and think his father was a strong man, a dictator. He takes over. He's a strong man. He's a dictator. Very early on, when she asked like her second question, I believe he goes, he goes, he goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. The army is not mine. I'm just the president. I don't tell what the ar- I don't tell the army what to do. I mean, you know, he, again, there was this disconnect. The fact that we're supposed to somehow ignore that he has life and death control over everybody in that country all the time. He can have anybody taken out. And, and just the fact that he's going to say that just shows that as long as I'm soft-spoken, as long as I come across as mild-mannered and I deny everything, this is just a stalling tactic. I can I can get out here and I can say my thing and then I'll go back and I'm going to try to win the Civil War. But he, the, 
I give him credit for for hanging in there with Barbara Walters for an hour or an hour and a half or whatever it was. But he did not break from what I can tell. And he, I don't think he believes what he's saying, but I certainly think that he's used to lying and saying what he has to to maintain power. Yeah, I guess. He's a really interesting character. Here's, um, here's another clip. You are mixing between the protesters and the killing. It's different. Now we are having terrorists uh, in many places killing now? No, 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 not only now, no, from the very beginning. No, not now. Now it's recognized in the media, that's the difference. But from the very first few weeks, we had those terrorists. They are getting more and more, more aggressive. They've been killing. We have 1,000, over 1,100 soldiers and policemen killed. Who killed them? Peaceful demonstrations? This is not logical. This is unpalatable. Let me ask the question again. Yeah. Do you feel now, even with people who have been protesting, that you have the support of your people? The majority or the minority? Because you are talking about protesters. The, major- protesters? the majority of the people you feel still support you? Not The majority of the people are in the middle, always. The majority okay. of the Syrian people are in the middle. And then you have people who support you, and you have people who are against you. Yep. So the majority always in the middle. Those yep. majority are not against you. If they are against you, you cannot have stable, most of the cities, not Syria, let's say. As you see, you've been here for two days now. You feel the majority of the people in this country support you? I say the majority are in the middle. And the, the majority, majority are not against, okay. to be precise. Uh, the majority that is in the middle support you? Yeah. Okay. Um, the protest really began... Let, let, me, let me just stop her there because she's muddling up his words. So my understanding of what he's saying is the majority of the country are in the middle. They neither support him or are against him. Mm-hmm. They're just in the middle. You've got people on one extreme that support him, people on the other extreme that are against him. The people in the middle are neither for nor against. Now, I think that... They just want he, peace. Well, th- that's right. And, you know, I think he's probably right. Um, and he's saying his position is at that point in time, the majority were not against him. They're not supporting him, but they're not against him either. They're just, as you say, they just want to live their lives. They just want peace. They're waiting to see. They want, they want all the violence and the trouble to go away. But she keeps trying to position it as they're for him. He's saying, no, 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 that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying they're not against me. It's not the same thing as they're for me. They're just in the middle, right? Which means they could go either way, really. And also what he said before that is if the majority are against you, you can't be in government. So he's saying that his his leadership is still valid because the majority are not against him. Not that they're for him. Mm. They're not against him. Well, let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question. I mean, because you you talk about the Australian government and things that it that it that it does that you do not like. What would it take for the government to do? I mean, these are people who either are just so pissed off, they're willing to risk their life and go out on the streets and protest and march and they're tired. Maybe they're tired of the poverty or the control, the lack of freedom, because remember, we talked about his father had special uh, special powers, whatever, from an emergency decree where he could pretty much control everything. I mean, these. What would it take for your government? To, what would rights would your government have to violate? Would you go out on the street and march with a bunch of people, knowing that there was a 
a semi chance of a sniper, of a bomb, of a tank, of someone coming in and shooting. I mean, these people have to really be riled up. And I'm not even talking about the people taking up arms against the government. I'm talking about the people just walking the street because they are just so fed up with everything that's been going on for years. It must be, they must be feeling it quite keenly to risk their lives to make a statement like that. Yeah. I mean, I guess in Australia it'd have to be if they, I don't know, blocked Get game topless bars. I was oh, going to say blocked Game of Thrones, something like that. I'd, I'd have to go march in the streets. <laughs> you, do you have a torch ready? I mean, can you buy a torch on Amazon? How does that work? Yeah, pretty sure, Jon Snow will make one for me in a cave. Let me play the rest of this clip. Yeah. The protest really began with after the detention and torture of children who were writing graffiti calling for your downfall. I've seen awful pictures of what happened. Why was there such a brutal crackdown? What happened? Well, I'll give you some examples, yeah. and you can tell me if you've seen them. Mm. These are some of the images and stories, and some of the images that I saw. Yeah. A 13-year-old boy who was arrested in April. A month later, his body was returned to his family, bearing scars of torture. Mm. A famous cartoonist whom you know who was critical of you, badly beaten, his arms were broken. Mm. A singer, famous singer, who wrote a popular song calling for your ouster, he was found with his throat cut. You have seen these pictures, have you not? No, but I... I Is this I, news to you? No, 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 it's not news. I met with his father, with the father of that child, and he said that he wasn't tortured, and he appeared on the media. You have to see... We have to see things with a stereoscopic vision with two eyes, not with one eye, to okay. be frank. The cartoonist. The cartoonist who is critical of you. He appeared on the media and said that his son wasn't tortured. Yes, we were pointing guns at him at the time, but, uh, you know, that's not my fault. <laughs> I've seen his pictures. Right. His hands were broken. He was beaten. Many people criticized me. Did they kill all of them? Who killed who? Most of the people that have been killed are supporters of the government. Not the vice versa. But in the beginning, uh, mm. what about the singer with his throat cut? I don't know about him. I don't know about He was a famous singer, a famous song. You don't know about it. No, I don't think he's famous. This I don't know about him. You don't know about <laughs> it. Well, I saw... Was it Phil Collins? No. Well, I, yeah. I, he's the only singer that I need. I don't listen to anyone. <laughs> <laughs> the United States, but not the This is... Do, this do you is... know about him? This what? is editing. I don't know. I don't know. You don't yeah. know? No, no, no. At that point, he turns to somebody off camera. And says, do you know about the singer? And they're like, no, I don't I guess no. We don't know. We don't know about the singer. That's pretty good. I, I didn't think hear the story the first time. For yeah. the child, I met with his father, and there was a special investigation committee to, to see if there was torture. There was no torture. This what? is uh, only false allegations, to be frank with you. That's why I said at the very beginning my message for the media to tell the truth, not to listen to rumors. Yeah, so yeah. go on. He is yeah. cold. No, I was just going to say, I think the artist, the song that he was talking about was uh, Shut Up or You Face. Uh, but I, <laughs> <laughs> I could be off a little bit. I don't know. Uh, um, uh, all right, wait, wait, wait. Don't go anywhere. No. <laughs> Hello, I'm a Giuseppe. I got something special for you. Ready? Uno, two, three, quattro. When I was a boy, just about the Mama used to say, don't stay out late with the bad boys. Always shoot the pool, Giuseppe going to flunk a school. Boy, it make me sick, all the thing I gotta do. I can't get no kicks, I always got to follow rules. Boy, 
way it making me sick Just to make the lousy bucks Got to feel it like a fool And the mama used to say all the time What's the matter you? Hey, got no respect What do you think you do? Hey, you look so sad It's not so bad It's a nicer place Ah, shut up your face That's my mama, can I remember Big accordion Ray was introduced to that song while we were driving around in a bus in Queensland a few weeks ago. <laughs> Cam, Cam uh, is barreling the uh, the song out. I'm like, what the fuck is this? But he was having a good time. So we just and now my daughter, my nine year old daughter, has the entire song memorized. <laughs> so a um, couple of other interesting things from that clip. Uh, Bashar's claiming that terrorists were involved in the violence from the very beginning. Something Mohanad Sakir also said in our interview. Um, so, but I, I don't know. I mean, he's also saying, oh, the boys weren't tortured. So the whole thing in Daraa that started the yeah. the whole civil war, the, well, it was over nothing because the boys weren't tortured. I mean, I don't know. It's just his, his justifications. It's just it's something yeah. weird, man. It's just, it's just not right. Very dexterish. He's just so calm about the whole thing. You're suggesting he's a psychopath or a sociopath? Yeah, I mean, how do you either, I mean, can you not be born one and become one? I mean, I don't know how that works, but he had to see his father growing up with his father had to do to maintain control. And you just got to wonder, he is willing to do whatever it takes not to lose his father's, uh, what his father's efforts, what his father worked for. I don't know. The whole thing is just creepy as hell. Yeah, if you're born one, you're a psychopath. If you're made one... Uh, you're a sociopath and that usually it's like if you something bad happens to you as a child you get beaten up a lot you get raped uh, you get uh, you know you you witness some horrendous event it can damage your empathy centers and your risk centers of your brain you can become a sociopath but I mean he he didn't have any of that in his life as far as I'm aware fairly privileged life was becoming Mm -hmm. an ophthalmologist and he talks a bit about that in another clip that I've got Um, or I mean alternatively May okay, so let so put yourself in Bashar al-Assad's shoes for a second. Mm-hmm. Um, your family has been running this country for forty odd years. Um, you've just seen Muhammad Gaddafi murdered by his own people with the help of the U.S., but murdered by his own people. Before that. Ten years or so ago, you saw Saddam Hussein captured, murdered by his own people with the support of the US. Mm-hmm. Um, you've seen Mubarak in prison. You've seen um, uh, who I call all these guys dropping like flies recently. Yeah. So you're now your your own country's devolving into a civil war. What are your options? You can stand up and say, yes, we did all of this. Uh, We gave the orders. Um, We're a terrible bunch of people. We all deserve to be whipped and flogged and hung. Or (laughs) you can go into complete denial mode. No, no, it wasn't me. I don't know what you're talking. Never happened. Never happened. Wasn't me. Uh, Prove it. Which is honestly... This is where Donald Trump got his playbook from. 
Just yeah. stand up and just deny, obfuscate. Um, and you see this, I mean, we see this all the time, particularly in Senate and congressional hearings in the United States over things like the global financial crisis, over, uh, uh, before that, the, the um, Enron collapse, mm-hmm. the trials of those guys. Whenever you see typically men, uh, powerful, wealthy men who have committed terrible crimes put on trial these days, they all play the same playbook as, no, nah, never happened. Oh, I, I can't remember. Sorry, I can't recall that conversation. Yeah. You're on. No, I don't. I must have uh, memory lapses. I must have brain tumors. Uh, I think I'm suffering from early onset Alzheimer's. No, I never did that. I was never there. I didn't bring uh, my glasses. Yeah. If I, I, it never happened. And if it did happen, I wasn't there. And if I was there, I didn't really mean it. And if I did mean it, then I must have been insane at the time. Um, you know, this is this is not an unusual way of playing through this kind of a scenario. I mean, we, we've we seen this happen with Trump and his entourage over the whole, their communications with Russia during um, the transition and, and after. Um, you just you see it happen all the time. Now, it could indicate that the, all the people involved are psychopaths or sociopaths, or maybe it's just, I mean, you know, if, if your wife catches you having an affair, Mm-hmm. or she accuses you of having an affair and you are actually having an affair and she accuses you of it, you don't go, yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, not many people, let me say this, not many people right. say, fuck yes, yeah. Oh, I've been fucking the shit out of her. It's awesome. No. Like, really? Oh, her pussy is so tight. No. She, she no. gives me blowjobs every time, you not just on my birthday. She swallows. She asks for more. Um, no. you don't. She lets me put my finger up her ass. She does. She like moans. She doesn't complain. You don't do that. You go, nah, never happened. No, didn't did Honey, not happen. I love um, you. yeah, no, it it didn't happen. It would never happen. But I've got evidence. No, nah, they're not my emails. I don't know. I must have been hacked. But I've got photos of you. No, that's not me. They've been photoshopped. But <laughs> I was there yeah. in the room. No, you must have mistaken me for someone else. That wasn't me. <laughs> well, it, you know, in, that in this, you don't have yeah. to be. You know, just in this um, era of um, post-truth, I think, the, I think the new standard is it doesn't matter fit, video, photos, signatures, emails, whatever. It's not true unless you admit it. And so now we've figured out that as long as I don't admit it, whatever they put up against me, I can probably create some reasonable doubt. But it's gotten to the point where as long as I don't admit it, I didn't do it. It didn't happen. Yeah. And I guess my point is that you don't necessarily have to be a sociopath or a psychopath to be lying to try and cover your ass. I mean, it's fucking Bill Clinton, man. Did you have sex with her in the Oval Office? No. No, well, yeah. eh, depends on what you mean by sex. Technically, no. Uh, she just gave me a blowjob and I came all over her dress. That's not technically yeah. sex. I wasn't lying when I said sex. Now, here's the thing is Democrats, by and large, in the United States, totally will back up Bill Clinton on that. Well, it was fine for him to do that. He's, yeah. uh, you know, that's, that's not, not, it's got nothing to do with anything. Yes, it has got to do with everything in my book. He fucking lied to the American job. people while president. 
While sitting as president, he lied to the American people. Don't try and fucking pussyfoot around it. So, and now, does that make him a sociopath or a psychopath? I don't think so. It just means he's a guy trying to save his ass. And I think we're all we we're all capable of that. We've all probably done that at some point or another. I know I have. Not proud of it, but I've to lied that. to try and yeah. save my ass from time to time. <laughs> okay, you want to tell us a story, Ray? No, no, because it never happened. There's nothing to tell. Now, before we started recording, you were asking me about my policy <laughs> on whether or not to kiss a woman after she's given me a blowjob. Is this something that uh, you want to tell us about? Uh, no, I'll just sit here with a goofy smile on my face and not say a word. <laughs> All right. Well, that's the end of this episode. So we haven't done any reviews for a, read out any reviews for a few months. Before we go, I better read out some reviews because there've been lots and lots and lots of reviews. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, we promise people stuff for reviews, and then I keep forgetting yeah. to do them. So I'm going to do these reviews. Um, all right. Uh, this is from the United States. Senator Know Nothing, another home run. These two secret Trump admirers have hit it out of the park again with their latest offering, the BS filter. Their smart banter, insightful knowledge, and well-researched info is much better than what we get from our fake news outlets. What is amazing to me is how they can provide such in-depth knowledge while doing so many different podcasts at the same time, still holding jobs, and occasionally pleasuring either their wives or each other. Not only do they give in-depth info, but jazz it up with all sorts of banter and occasionally some rock music. I am still waiting to hear about ISIS and their use of goats. Ray should be able to speak of that from a Virginian point of view. Good on you, guys. I'm doing research now. (laughs) I think we've talked... Since you wrote that, we have talked about ISIS, Senator Know Nothing, but I think we skipped uh, the goats, so I apologize for that. Um, send us uh, an email to uh, whatever our email address is and uh, <laughs> mention that you wrote this review and uh, I'll organise to have a thank you gift sent to you. Thank you very much, Senator Know Nothing. Thank you, Senator. Uh, we've got more of Bashar al-Assad when we come back. <laughs>